All right, if anyone was wondering who the best actress is, it's obvious that it's Natalie Portman. Anybody else? Jennifer, no, 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 no. I do love Jennifer Lawrence, whoever said that. Okay, uh, but Natalie Portman takes the cake, but you know, whatever. Um, tonight we're talking uh, about week two of our Outcast series. Last week, week one, we, we talked about race. Next week, we'll be talking about refugees. And tonight, I get the privilege of talking about, the, about gender and what the Bible says about men and women. In my elementary school years, um, I, I played a lot with the kids in the neighborhood on my street and in the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, I didn't go to the same school as them. I went to a, a private Christian school, but on the evenings, on weekends, in the summer, I hung out with uh, my neighborhood friends pretty much all the time. We played a whole lot of sports. Um, we, this, this is the group that consisted, except for me, um, of all boys, and this was where we had our infamous bike races, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, until that fateful day when I tore up my elbow and all those bike races stopped. Um, but we played a lot of sports, so riding our bikes, we would play football in the yard or kickball when it would rain, because then we could slide in the mud, and it was awesome. But our favorite sport to play that we played basically at all times was street hockey. Any street hockey people? <laughs> wow, okay. You know, <laughs> yeah, yay, street hockey, cool, Mara. Um, it really wasn't until I came to college that I realized the rest of the U.S. doesn't really love hockey the way that we do in border states, like in these cities right by Canada. Um, street hockey was awesome. My, my dad grew up with his buddies, like, they actually made an ice rink in their backyard in the winter and would just play hockey all the time. We'd play like day and night. We'd play so much street hockey. Sometimes we would play on a rollerblade, sometimes we wouldn't. Um, and you always had that kid who'd like come decked out in full pads, you know, like trying to convince you he knows what he's doing, which like, cool. Um, but we loved street hockey and okay, so there, there are many things that I'm not good at and I can admit that. I'm going to be honest with you, street hockey is not one of those things. Um, I was really good at hockey. Uh, I, I just, it was something that, I was, I was always athletic, I grew up pretty athletic, but hockey is one of those sports that I just really loved and I played a lot of. And I um, remember one day specifically, I was just like having the street hockey game of my life apparently and I was like, you know, stealing the puck from the guys and I was scoring a lot and I just really was on my game playing street hockey in fourth grade. And, um, and I just remember there's something like I scored or I stole the puck at one point or something and Corey Makita from across the street, um, I don't know Corey anymore so I doubt he listening to the podcast, um, he lost it. He just threw a fit and he was like almost to the point of tears and he's yelling and he was so angry and he's yelling, this isn't fair, it's not fair. And I was like, what's not fair? And he said, she's in middle school. I was not in middle school. I was in fourth grade like the rest of them. But because I took a different bus to school, he did not believe me. There was no way that a girl the same age as them could be playing as well as I did, nevertheless beat them um, at the game that they were playing. Like it, He had no framework. He did not believe I was the same age as them. And they would sometimes get so annoyed and so angry when I would play well that I started um, to dumb myself down a little bit. Like I'd play at like 80% and 
um, just so I would avoid like them getting so frustrated and angry about it. And because the truth is, they just couldn't comprehend the fact that a girl could be playing at their level, a girl their age. Like there had to be something that was different. There had to be something that was causing this. And of course, you know how it works when the boys had a good game. Like, you know, they'd be annoyed maybe, but it wasn't like questioned, right? Like some people just have good games. Some people are better than others, but when I would beat them, something, there had to be something that was exceptional about me. In our world, we've, um, we've made it so that men and women fit into certain roles or, or gendered stereotypes, norms, personalities. We've, we've set, um, have set destinies, set callings for men and for women that are different than the other. Um, and when we stray from whatever that role is, whatever we say is the image of being feminine, the image of masculine, there must be something wrong. Or you, you must not actually be a man, you must not actually be a woman, or we, we get confused, or if you don't fit that role, or you don't go into that field that it seems like we're supposed to, there's a lot of judgment that comes from that, or maybe not open to that, or something is weird about that, right? Um, maybe a lack of respect for what you do if it doesn't fit into this role that, that we've created. And this is true in, in our country, it's true in our world, um, both in Christian circles and in secular circles. This isn't something that is just in one or the other. We've created these gendered roles that have led to a lot of confusion in our world. We've um, We've made it so that we're, we're confused about a lot of this. And there's so many angles tonight as we talk about gender that I could take. There's so many paths that I can go down. It's a complex conversation. Tonight, I'm just going to focus on what we as the church, what our role is in this, and what I believe um, the Bible says about all of these things. Tonight, we're focusing on, on that because, as we've said before, if we don't view these things in the lens uh, through the lens of Jesus, then we're doing it in vain. We're missing the point, right? And, and I, I truly believe that the church should be on the leading end of this, not the other way around. We should be modeling this for the world around us, not taking cues from the world outside. So this problem, I think, is definitely is especially apparent in the church. This has been uh, an issue throughout all of church history. It's been the, the church has been defined by this. So I went to a Christian school. We, uh, there's so many stories probably represented in this room. I went to a Christian school where I was told that we were told as a group that um, women don't have a place in ministry leadership, uh, that women cannot operate in the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord doesn't give words to women, just to men. And that was an extreme view, but that's how I was brought up in the school that I was in telling me that um, women had very distinct roles. They could be school teachers or they could be homemakers. And then even in my five years of being on staff in, in ministry in this role, I've seen some of the lack of openness to, to that role for me um, and how people receive that as well. And I've, my eyes have been opened to that. Um, there, we, we go to so many conferences where it's just assumed I'm Blaine or Josh's wife. Uh, we've actually had, I had a woman pray over me and Josh and our future kids together. Uh, and let's face it, like Evie and Jeremiah are just as much my kids, basically, than theirs anyway. Um, and, you know, when this happens, like, 
<laughs> I don't. I didn't have the heart to say anything. I just like was like, "Amen." Um, you know, I didn't want to necessarily embarrass her because the intentions. I knew what she meant, and she's a product of kind of a culture that we've created throughout all of history. So I can't blame her for that. But this is something that um, is so much a part of of my life and a lot of our lives. I was talking to um, a woman just this week a couple days ago who is a director of a Chi Alpha out in the Midwest. And she said she's been told by many pastors that they will financially support her and her Chi Alpha when she gets married and when she has a husband. And these are real things that are all around us in the church. This is probably how a lot of people in this room have grown up. I know it's in many ways how I grew up. We also may have heard um, this idea of kind of Women and men are separate or they're different but equal. Um, this, this idea that, you know, maybe we're, we're born with natural biological differences between men and women that might put us more in one camp or the other. We gravitate towards one thing versus another. And I think, um, it, it, but the idea is that, that we're different, but they still have the same value, right? And I think, um, I think I might believe that in some ways if I actually believed that we actually believed that. What I mean is that, you know, I, I think that there are some ways that God made male and female. We see that in the Bible, and there might be some differences. I think a lot of differences are cultural and what we've made, but um, I might believe in that, but one, we've, we've put um, just a line in stone, you know, that women have to be this way, that men have to be this way. And I don't think that that's how God designed it even if there might be some natural things that maybe um, lead us in one direction or the other, usually. But I also don't believe that we actually believe that these roles, even if they are natural, that they have the same value. I mean, you've heard it before. Look at a paycheck. And within the church, right? Or um, think about what roles are idolized in the church, and who has those, those roles. So I don't know if we actually believe that we, that we value them equally, even though we might say that we do. So not only have we we've made these roles set in stone based on gender, but we've also um, placed a value on these roles. And the truth is, in, in most of our world, that value is less for the roles that we've assigned to women. The roles that we've placed on women are often the ones that are valued the least. Throughout much of church history, we've believed in these, set, these differences and these roles that are not overlapping, right? This is kind of how a lot of the church operates, that um, the contribution to church, to society, to the family, to marriage is unequal, and it mostly falls on men. Then there's another side that says that, hey, maybe we might be different, and there are sometimes differences, but those roles are often overlapping, and that men and women contribute equally to society, to the church, to our families and our marriages. And that's where we fall, that both contribute equally. And I think throughout history, we've, we've explained away some of these views, understandably. So maybe, you know, you might be thinking, or others might be thinking, um, well, this is just how I see women portrayed in the Bible. Um, this is just what I see here and tonight. Um, I want to challenge this. And I don't want to challenge this as someone who's a feminist who's like fighting for all the power to be for women and to build this matriarchy. Um, 
that's not how God designed it, and that's not what I'm going for. So I hope you're not hearing that and not going into this thinking that that's just what I want. But I do want to see a picture of God's kingdom here on earth, a glimpse of God's perfect design from the very beginning. And the truth is, throughout history, within the church, we've silenced the gifts that God has given many, many women based on our misunderstandings of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So, um, buckle up, strap in. I'm going to talk about a whole bunch of things, and I know this isn't like the most feel-good topic or even sermon series, but I think that I want to challenge us tonight to really read scripture um, from a lens that, that Jesus gives us. We're going to be bouncing around some passages, but for the most part, we're going to be in two main ones, and you're welcome to flip there, keep your fingers in your Bibles. Um, Romans 16 we'll be looking at, and we'll be looking also at Genesis 1. And I'll get there um, in just a couple minutes, but before I do all of that, let me pray for us as we dive in. God, I pray that the words of my heart and the meditation, um, the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are pleasing to you. God, would you give me discernment as I speak about what we believe your kingdom looks like? God, would you give us open hearts to hear your word and what you have for us tonight? And Lord, we pray that you are, are glorified by what we talk about tonight, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's address the hard passages, just from the top. I'm sure if you've read through your Bible, you've, you've come to these, the, these passages that make you cringe a little bit. Um, I'm th- talking about like Titus 2, 1 Timothy 2. There's some passages in Corinthians. And these are passages um, that have explained this idea of biblical womanhood, justified the, uh, the creation of gendered roles that women are meant to be silent, submissive to their husbands, um, to stay at home with the family. We read some of these passages, and I'm going to be honest, um, they're really hard to wrestle with. I read them, and I'm like, ooh, okay, that doesn't feel good. Um, so these exist, and I, and I understand they exist. And I think we've used these passages to justify these roles that, that we've created, say women and men, fit into, understandably. And I think it's hard to think critically about context and culture um, without dismissing everything about the Bible. Um, that's really difficult for us to do. And so as we think about the context with which um, the, these passages are written, I want us to think about two things. One, it's that the Bible does not justify sin and two, the Bible does not contradict itself. So the Bible doesn't uh, justify sin. I'm reading a passage that says do not murder, but I can't really say like, well, but that was written like 5,000 years ago. You know, like we wouldn't say that. The Bible doesn't justify sin. And the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't say things that are opposite. It does not say opposing things. So in the Bible, we see examples of, of, of women like, the Proverbs 31 women, men, yeah, Proverbs 31 women, many people have, have seen that, or Esther or Ruth, who fit our idea of femininity, have fit this, these roles. But then there are also these examples um, throughout scripture of women that we often don't talk about, but they're clearly in there that don't seem to fit um, those stereotypes that we've built in. And these women seem to contradict 
what the Bible says in these passages that I've talked about. And so I think it's important to look at those things and, and examine them to see, okay, what then might the context be? So I want to share some of these stories about some of these women that we don't often hear about. The first one um, that comes to mind, Deborah. We talked about Deborah last year, if you were around. Deborah is found in Judges 4 and 5. Deborah is a prophet and a judge in Israel. She wasn't just a leader of women. She was a leader of men and women, the whole tribe of Israel. Um, the prophets and the judges, they were like the leaders at the time in Israel. And so it's also argued that, um, that, she, that, that her family and, and home life was all um, shaped around her job, not her husband's, which is countercultural. That it probably was, was shaped around that because of her leadership position and her job. We also see in the New Testament, Mary Magdalene, um, a lot of scholars would say there were actually 13 disciples of Jesus and that Mary was the 13th, but we don't talk about it in that way because she was a woman and couldn't get that title. But Jesus is always at the feet of Jesus, uh, or Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. She is learning from Jesus. She follows where the disciples go. She's learning all the same things, and Jesus is teaching her all the same things. She was uh, one of the women who were the first to witness and proclaim the resurrection. She was also one of the women who were at the feet of the cross when Jesus was crucified. So Mary Magdalene is an example of that. Or Lydia of Philippi, we see in Acts 16. Lydia is cool. She, um, she's the first ever documented convert to Christianity in the early church. So she's the first one to believe in Jesus. And then she went home and she told her whole household and they all just like converted and all became Christians. The first documented Christian or convert to Christianity is a woman, Lydia. So let's look at, at Romans 16. This is one of those passages that's easy for us to just gloss over. It's those personal greetings, so like the shout outs at the end of the letters, right? Like, oh, thanks to this person and this person. I mean, it's easy to gloss over it, but one, I think there's a reason why Paul put these names and these shout outs in his letters. And there's also a reason why we, we add it to scripture, to the canon of scripture. There's a reason why it's in here. So I want to look at some of these people that he points out and talk about a few of them. So in Romans 16, starting in verse 1, we'll read through uh, to verse 16. It says, oh, and <laughs> bear with me, a lot of these names are Greek, and I don't really know how to pronounce them, so just pretend I do. Okay, starting in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who, worked hard, who work hard in the Lord. 
greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. All right, so verse 1, right off the bat, we meet Phoebe. Phoebe's an awesome person. Phoebe, um, we see right in verse 1 that she's considered a deacon. A deacon, in the footnotes, is described as a Christian designated to serve with the overseers or the elders of the church in a variety of ways. So she was a church elder. This word deacon is also used to describe Timothy later on. And then in Timothy's letters, he's describing the qualifications of a deacon and says that that it can belong to both men and to women. Phoebe was the one who delivered this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church, to the church at Rome. So that means she was pretty important to be the first one mentioned, and she was the one who delivered the letter. It suggests that she was probably the one who housed the church. The church was meeting in her house. And odds are she was also probably the elder, if not the pastor, of that church. So Paul asks, we see in these verses, for the church leaders to respect her, to, to view her authority and her leadership, um, along with these, these other women. So that's Phoebe. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to talk about Priscilla. And Priscilla is quickly becoming maybe my favorite person in the Bible because she was pretty sweet. Priscilla and her husband Aquila, Paul says they're co-workers in Christ with him. They were missionary partners. They both went on uh, a bunch of missionary journeys and traveled with Paul and worked with him as a missionary. Something that's really interesting about when Paul talks about them, they're talked about six times in the Bible. And equally, Paul alternates which name comes first. So three times Priscilla is mentioned first, three times Aquila is mentioned first. And that's very countercultural because back then, the husband's name always came first, right? And so I think this is really intentional of Paul to alternate, to have it equally. Most believe that Priscilla was probably the head of the household in this case. Priscilla and not Aquila, but Priscilla was um, considered a presbyter or like an elder in the church, one of the church leaders. We see them also in Acts 18. Priscilla and Aquila were the ones who trained Apollos and taught him everything he knew, and Apollos was um, one of the first great evangelists in the early church. They taught him everything that, that they knew about Jesus, and so they were teachers and leaders of other leaders. And I think the coolest thing about Priscilla is that many scholars believe that she was actually the anonymous author of the book of Hebrews. Now, she would have, if this is true, would have remained anonymous so that um, people would receive the letter and would read it and not dismiss it. And so she didn't write her name on it, much like um, J.K. Rowling, whose name is Joanne, and changed her, her name so that she would be read more, or George Eliot, who is actually uh, Mary Ann Evans. I don't know if you knew that. It also would have been written strategically in, in Paul's style of writing, so it's very similar to how, how Paul writes. There's some differences, but this makes sense. One, because people would probably read it if they thought it was from Paul, and two, I mean, she worked with Paul every day. She was trained by Paul. Like she, they, they wrote in the same style, and so it's believed that, that she was probably the writer of Hebrews. 
we also see them in 1 Corinthians and in um, 2 Timothy, these two really prominent leaders in the early church. And then also in that chapter, we see other women that Paul comments on, Mary, Junia, who is another apostle with Paul, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, he says brothers and sisters in Christ. So we see all these women who seem to um, define these stereotypes of what we think biblical womanhood should be, what these roles look like. And my question, I guess, is if, if these women exist in Scripture, why have we excused putting all women in one box? Why have we made it so that in the church and in our world, women don't have a voice, or at least don't have a voice that we deem as valuable as men's? And then if these women seem to contradict those passages in Titus and in Timothy and Corinthians, what then can that say about the culture um, in which those passages were written? I think this is a point where we say, okay, these seem to be contradicting. How can I think critically about those passages, right? So, for example, in Corinthians, when, when women are told to be silent in church, well, the context was that in this case, it just so happened that the women were the ones causing the problem, not because they were biologically, like, supposed to cause problems, but because based on the culture they were in, women were not allowed to be educated. So at this church, they were, you know, bringing out false prophecies because they weren't educated. And so Paul is saying, he's not condoning that women aren't educated, but he's saying, because you're not educated, you're going to have to be silent because you just don't know in this case. Right? So that's the context that that Paul is writing. Um, He's also writing in a lot of these passages in a Greco-Roman culture where there's this hierarchy. And so he's not condoning inequality, but he's saying, because we live in this world, this is what we should do. A lot of these passages about women staying silent and submissive come directly after Paul tells slaves to submit to their masters. Now, in this day and age, unfortunately in the past, this hasn't been true, but in this day and age, we wouldn't condone slavery. We wouldn't say that Paul was saying that slavery should exist or people should be slaves but he was talking about the culture that they were in. So why, if we take slavery into context, why haven't we taken these gender roles into context as well? In this series, the the question we've been asking is what does the kingdom of heaven look like? Right, what does the kingdom of heaven look like? Josh last week talked about this as he looked into Revelations and said, and read the passage about how every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping together in the kingdom, that this diversity that's in the kingdom of heaven, this is what's represented in heaven. In Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and he says to pray this, um, your kingdom come, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he talks to his disciples about all these in parables about heaven, about the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Our lives are about pursuing the kingdom, about pursuing what the kingdom of heaven could look like here on earth. See, heaven later isn't the focus of the Bible. It's heaven here and now. So I think we can look towards heaven, look towards that perfection of when we're with Christ in perfect unity. But the focus of the Bible isn't that. The focus of the Bible is heaven here and now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Genesis, we see God's initial perfect design 
for the world, for this earth, where God and humanity could dwell together in God's presence, in perfect unity, in God's perfect creation. And in Genesis 1, uh, in, in verse, starting in verse 26, this is, is what it says. God has just, um, he's in the process of creating the universe, right? It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, he created them. And skipping down to verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So right there at the beginning, we see that God created mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. And then we see that at the end of that chapter, God said, it's good. This works. This is perfect. It was so perfect that once it was completed, God allowed himself to rest. He said, I've made how it's supposed to be. I've designed it perfectly. So I'm going to rest from the work that I did. I've brought this, um, this diagram before last year, so some of you may have seen it, and also I um, stole it from the Bible Project, so it's not really mine. But I find that these, uh, this Venn diagram, <laughs> this isn't a Venn diagram yet, that's just a circle, um, but it will be, uh, really helpful in describing the Garden of Eden, the presence of God, God's kingdom on earth. So this is like when God first created the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth, they dwelt together in perfect unity. This is where um, humans and God could be together. But then sin enters the world, and we see that because of sin, heaven and earth then can't be together. They separate, right? Sin separates us from God's presence. And so, so much of our lives are about um, the next slide, which is having heaven and earth come together, finding these moments where they overlap, this middle area, so much of, of God's kingdom coming to earth is praying for those moments where we can get back to the garden, where we can get back to God's perfect design, his perfect creation. And ultimately, this is done um, through the cross. It's done through Jesus. He's the one who bridges the gap. And then because of Jesus, we can see glimpses of heaven on earth um, throughout our lives. Jesus made that, that possible for us. So even though sin entered the world and separated us from God and will never look like the perfect image of the garden until Christ returns, um, we are constantly pursuing to get back into the garden, to get back into that place where heaven and earth collide, where they overlap, right? To see God's perfect kingdom, his perfect creation here on earth, and, and Jesus made a way for that to be possible. Inequality is a post-fall reality. Inequality came into the world as a result of sin. It's something that was not part of God's design. It wasn't part of his perfect creation. It's a post-fall reality. Before sin entered the world, inequality did not exist. And it would be easy for us to say, well, yeah, but 
because of sin, it is just part of our reality now. This is what we live with. In some ways, yeah, that's true. We do live with it. But know what else is a product of sin entering the world? Sickness. But we wouldn't say that we shouldn't be fighting for cures for cancer. Or we wouldn't say that we're not praying for people to be healed. We see Jesus do that in his time on earth. and We've seen people be healed. We're praying for those things. And if we believe that about those things that sin has caused, why don't we view inequality in the same way? An argument about this, about this idea that inequality when it comes to gender, um, you know, being actually part of God's design before the fall is seen um, in Genesis 2.20. And I'm just going to read that real quick. It says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And then so God creates Eve. This word helper a lot of people have used to justify the idea that women are here to be submissive to their husbands, to support their husbands, to always be kind of championing their cause, and they're the ones who are constantly um, the ones to, to be leading and to shape our lives around. And I want to just talk for a second about this word helper and the Hebrew word, because our English definition for it um, doesn't do it justice. The word that they use here actually more translates into um, saving someone who's in trouble. It's a military word. It's a, it means kind of like a warrior strength. And it's used throughout the Bible in a couple of other areas. Um, in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, it's used to describe, three times it's describing military aid, bringing military aid. And it's used 16 times to describe God as Israel's deliverer, as Israel's helper. Now, we, we wouldn't say that God was being submissive to Israel or just kind of the assistant, like, supporting them. Like, he's bringing salvation. He's saving them, that they needed him. And in this way, Adam and Eve needed each other to help each other to be complete. I read this um, really good quote that I liked, and I can't necessarily vouch for the book because I've not read the book, so I don't know um, how good it is or theologically correct, but this... this um, this passage is really good, and it said, you can follow along with me um, on the screen, it says, patriarchy is not God's dream for humanity. Instead, in Christ, and because of Christ, we are invited, in, we are invited to participate in the kingdom of God through redemptive movement for both men and women toward equality and freedom. We can choose to move with God further into justice and wholeness, or we can choose to prop up the world's dead systems baptizing in justice and power and sacred language. We're called to live a pre-fall life. We're designed, we're created to live in the Garden of Eden. And we can, we, can, we can choose to pursue a life that God's designed us for and created us for, or we can choose to, to stay in an unequal world that's been controlled by sin. These women that we've looked at here in Scripture who redefine the gendered stereotypes that we've convinced ourselves are the only right way for uh, women to, to be relevant in the church, these women, they redefine that. They're a glimpse of God's design for our world, a design that was brought even closer through Jesus. And I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that all women should fit those roles, um, or have th that personality. I'm not saying that at all.
but I am saying that it's okay if some do. That's what's so beautiful about the kingdom of God is because it's diverse. There's diversity in the kingdom of God. So what's the application? What does this mean for us as we think about um, how to apply this to our lives? I think number one is to embrace the gifts that God's given you. This is true for men and for women. It's true for both of us. God's gifted us with certain passions, whether it's to preach and to teach or to stay at home and to raise families, if it's to teach men or to teach women, play sports, play instruments, whatever it is, God has gifted us and made us in his image. That's part of his creation for us. So one, would we embrace the gifts that he's created us with? Number two is to lift one another up. To lift one another up. And recognizing that the gifts and the passions that God's given me, they might be different than the gifts and the passions that God's given you. And that's totally okay. We should celebrate those gifts and those passions equally because that's how God's created us. That means men, women, married, single, extrovert, introvert, majority, minority, whatever it is, we don't lift one up over the other. And I'm going to be honest, the church is notorious for lifting one up over the other. And this is not just a message or an application for men, and I hope you don't hear it this way. I'm not just preaching to men and how to change or how to help us as women. Um, Because the truth is, I think sometimes, oftentimes, the biggest barrier um, to women's equality is often other women. I think we need to change our expectation for what these roles might look like, what what we've given solely for men or women. Um, You know, the idea is that women are all gentle and men are all firm, or men can't cry or be in touch with their emotions, or women can't be strong. Um, Whatever it is, can we change our expectations that we have on men and women? So lifting one another up, supporting each other in those gifts. And thirdly, um, I think we need to speak up for those who don't have a voice. Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speaking up for others means having empathy and understanding. It means in some ways trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand what they might be dealing with, what they might be going through. And this also often takes sacrifice. For some of us, it means sacrificing something that we were born with, a right that we might have been born with, um, so that others who weren't privileged to be born with that are, are able to step up, to able to have a voice, able to experience that. And this is countercultural in America, in American Christianity. We're not really taught that we need to give up some of these rights that we're born with um, for the sake of others. We're taught that it's okay to not have to do that. It's easy for me to think, and for, for us as, as a community, it's just easy for us to think, well, it's not my fault that I was born white. Um, it's not my fault that I was born in America. It's not my fault that I was born a man. And that's true. <laughs> but I think the fact of the matter is the kingdom doesn't care about that. Jesus in John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
we heard as a staff, we heard about um, a pastor in the area who very recently, just this year, stepped down from his lead pastor role so that his wife could become the lead pastor of their church. And what he said was that some men are going to have to give up some of their influence to champion the cause of women who have been forced to silence theirs. This isn't true for everyone. Not, God's not asking every man to give up all their influence or to not become pastors so that now the church can only have female pastors. That's not what it is. But he was saying in this case, he had the influence to give up so that his wife could become a pastor of a church to start changing culture to make it okay for women to step into these roles. Those whose voices are louder, I think Christ gives us the obligation to speak up for those who don't have a voice. And in this area of gender, the truth is that men, your voice is louder right now. Just as much as last week in talking about race, my voice is way louder as a white person. And next week as we talk about refugees, my voice, being an American, is much louder. The band can come up and I'm gonna invite you guys um, to stand with me as we respond. This isn't a message that's just to come down hard or saying, change all the bad things you're doing. This is so that we can grow closer to Christ and how he designed us. We build our lives on him. Um, we seek his kingdom. We seek his righteousness. That's what brings change. That's what brings equality is when we seek him and his glory. And the truth is we can't go back to the garden if this isn't what we're seeking first. We can't see his kingdom on earth if we don't seek that first. And tonight as we respond, maybe that's just where we need to be for now, is to seek God's kingdom here on earth, to see more of it here, to pray your kingdom come and your will be done. And then as we go out from here, what's our role in this? I think all of us can play a role in all three of these applications, right? What's our role as we leave here within the church and how can we be a model for the world around us when it comes to inequality and specifically when it comes to gender and gender roles? What can we do differently as we seek God's kingdom and more of his perfect creation here on earth? Let's pray together. God, you're good and the way that you created us, it's just so perfect in your image. We recognize that sin, when it entered the world, separated us from you. But God, tonight, first, we thank you that you've made a way for us, that you provide a way for us to get back to the garden, even here on earth, that you provide glimpses of your kingdom, your perfect design here on earth. God, and as we talk about these things, as we talk about race and gender and refugees, God, would you open our hearts to what we can do differently, how we can put effort into seeing your kingdom come on earth. And Lord, tonight as we respond, would you give us a heart for those who don't have a voice? Would you give us a heart to love each other well and to lift each other up, to support one another because you've created us perfect in your image? God, that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made and contribute equally to your kingdom. God, would we be a model for the rest of the world? Would we go out tonight that we wouldn't be changed by culture and the world around us, that they wouldn't be on the leading end, but we would be paving the way. And that, God, 
Lord, people would come closer to you because they see the attraction to the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you. We, we thank you that you've made a way for us, that you've made, us, made a way for us to interact with you and to be in communion with you, God. And we just, we stand on that truth that you're perfect and you've designed us to be in communion with you. We love you, Jesus.